Okay, hello. Welcome to a live version of the Carousel podcast, which is now called the Carousel Interrogations. Um, we're streaming live just to try this out. We don't uh, really, you know, this is the first time I'm doing this, so we'll see if anybody tunes in. If you have any questions, just type them in the YouTube. We'll glance at it occasionally. Um, but this is also going to be posted in the normal channels of Spotify and Apple Podcasts and uh, Substack. So we're kind of doing two birds with one stone. Um, yeah, my guest today is somebody who I have seen in the scene for a long time. Kevin Kautzman of the Art of Darkness podcast. The Art of Darkness podcast is an independent podcast that tells life stories of great artists over the span of about three hours. The two hosts are Kevin, who I have here with me, and Brad Kelly. And every episode they take turns, like one of them tells the story of the artist, and then the other one like kind of does color commentary. And it reminds me a lot of the show Last House on the Left, because Last House last, on the Left. Last podcast last on the left. podcast on the left, not Last there House. There you go. Yeah. Uh, which is about like serial killers and horror stuff. And the only reason it reminds me most of that is because it's like you have a guy telling the story and then you have a color, a color guy. And it's very performative. And that show is very performative. And you guys are pretty performative, too. Um, And it's great because you get like both a story and it's really funny and it's like really fun. So and I think that's what's also so awesome about Art of Darkness. If you really I was listening to the Kubrick episode today, which is just so great because you're um diving deep it's you're getting like 60 facts per minute that you never knew about stanley kubrick like that he spoke with a bronx accent his entire life really for no reason besides to just like spite people which was really uh interesting um and so you are kevin a creative writing mfa a playwright a web designer i would call you a content maximalist you're extremely Mm. prolific you hmm. um, have so much stuff out there all the time. And not only you take very good care to make sure it's ex- accessible in every different way. I came across this uh, phrase on one of your websites that, that says like at the top of the website, there's a banner that goes one of your screenplays or plays pickleball available on Amazon. <laughs> yeah. Pickleball. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I thought was just so perfect for you because it's like, Oh, like, there's a screenplay and you can read it and it's available on Amazon and it's about pickleball. It's like so many very online things at once, uh, which I think it's that kind of encompasses your presence as a playwright for this age playwright for this Mm. era uh, is what I would call you. Um, Mm. So anyway, uh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. This is a real pleasure. We've uh, connected on the bird website you're in the Art of Darkness Telegram. We chat a lot, so it's really good to come on. I enjoy your podcast, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, awesome. Well, we're gonna yeah, we're gonna go point by point here, and and again, like uh, the the point um, of the show where I'm shifting it to be a little bit more of an interrogation, a little bit more like questioning, direct point <laughs> questions. So, <laughs> why did you pick me to, for a, for a format change? I feel like I'm the, uh, the canary in the coal mine. <laughs> well, you kind of are, but I actually did All it right. first with uh, Lafayette Lee. That's who I okay. did with first, but, uh, All right. Cool. But, yeah. So I, and I wrote kind of a thing about it, but I sort of, I, I haven't actually done the shift over. So um, yeah. That's also, great. I, mean, I dig it. 
Yeah. And for those curious, I'm drinking a cheese tea, which is a very strange beverage that we only have here in uh, Pasadena because there's so many Asians. They bring all their weird like teas here. And one of the things they do is cheese tea. And it's cheese tea. What kind of cheese is it? Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Wow. It's like mousse. It's like it's like cheesecake mousse on the top. And it's just so good. Gracious. Yeah. We have like dynamite. So many tea places here. But Love it. Uh, anyway, okay, that's for another time. Um, okay, so here's the first question I want to ask you, just to, as a spicy opener. Um, mm. it, how how to put this? Theater, you are a playwright. Don't see, talk to a lot of playwrights in our scene. It's mostly weirdos. Not that playwrights aren't weirdos. I grew up in a theater family, so I'm actually extremely ultra aware. Why is it that uh, the world of theater is so populated by uh, a certain type of person, shall we say? <laughs> we talk a lot yeah, about the mean... theme of the theater-occupied government, right? Which is right. Like hilarious me. Which are you <laughs> often gay men uh, are very attracted to theater. So, like, why, <clears throat> why is that? Why are gay men so attracted to theater? Well, I think that in the United States, so we have to make a lot of distinctions <laughs> in the theater because like, not at all, because like, you know, uh, because it's like, like in literature, you could say the word literature and it can mean a million different things, right? Do we mean genre fiction? Do we mean uh, sort of highbrow uh, lit from the canon? Do we mean mystery novels? You know, so the theater is a big place. Theater is a big word. It's a, it's a medium. Uh, as much as anything else. And one thing about theater in the United States is that it's it's been driven by, in so many ways, a uniquely American contribution to the theater, which is the musical. The musical is a, is a form that Americans essentially invented. It's like jazz. It's something that we can put our stamp on. And so the American theater is, is um, woefully colored by the musical and all of the well frankly there's there's just a a great deal of i suppose what they would call i did get an mfa uh you know queer coding and uh it's it's in uh, particularly in musicals right and it has why why do gays love musicals so much (laughs) i can't i'm not gonna speak (laughs) for for them um i you know i would i would speculate that in the United States, because of the United, well, this is not so much speculation. This is my, this is my theory of it, uh, and I do have a small amount of standing. I think that it's a consequence of the puritanical background of this country and the puritanical present of this country, which has been um, kind of perverted through a complete kind of crazy Escher fractal pattern, where where it comes out in un- unanticipated and unexpected ways. We have an extremely vain and narcissistic strain of puritanism in this country um it's morphed we're we're in any case i yeah, think it attracted I think no i think i think that that's yeah. accurate. we have a weird that will never escape fully escape the puritanical kind of not place. at all we have sort of no. a repressed thing that they don't have in in right. much of western europe for example certainly yeah. and uh and i think that the uh, the theater in the United States is the realm of misfits in a way. It's like the Island of misfit toys. Uh, but the, there's a lot of, um, bitterness 
and sort of rage about it in the American theater, which uh, you know, I've spent some time in England and I, I've done I've done theater over there, my own plays and other plays. And there's a, at least in the UK, it's it's much more ingrained in the culture. Uh, whereas in the United States, it's it's kind of seen as like an oddball thing, definitely left coded, definitely the purview of national public radio and and the class of people I like to call the jazz flute Americans. <laughs> uh, and I think that, you know, I mean, of course, we've had, you know, uh, great uh, playwrights who were who were gay. Uh, Tennessee Williams comes to mind, of course, but we've also had great playwrights who uh, slept with Marilyn Monroe in in uh, Arthur Miller. And, uh, you know, Eugene O'Neill uh, was you know, his work is is very masculine and kind of male focused. Now I'm talking about straight plays in the sense that they're not musicals, not straight or gay, but I mean, yeah, you know, uh, but for, you know, and I just think there's this huge distinction, like in my mind, between people who make musical theater and then people who are interested in, I guess, what I would call serious straight plays Sure. Uh, and that's much more the realm that I occupy and that interests me. Uh, there's some great musicals as well. Um, but I think, I think because, uh, you know, again, I can't, can't speak for, for gay man or gay people, but I think because theater has that veneer in the United States of being an outsider art, one could see that, uh, it, it might be attractive to people who feel like they're on, they're on the outside of of something. Beyond that, uh, theater is very very difficult to make, and it doesn't. Co- it's really pretty pretty difficult. It doesn't cost a lot, but it's it's difficult. Uh, you it requires a great deal of commitment, and uh, it's it also requires urban, typically an urban audience. So where where are the great theater cities in the in the United States? Chicago, New York City, Philly, all of those things. All of those cities, of course, have uh, you know, sort of expansive queer communities. Um, this all yeah. feels very circumstantial. I I think we both know deep down there is a reason why gays love musicals, and I don't know what that reason is. No, I th- well, I think the answer is because reason. musicals are musicals are fabulous. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That is the reason. I- but <laughs> right no i mean i i mean maybe i'm being too uh too i guess sort of academic or cerebral about it I but i was just you're, gonna, writing, you're, you're trying yeah. to find all these like other reasons but well, it, there's there's actually there is some sort of metaphysical or unexplained <laughs> phenomenon yeah. here with that where like for some reason gay guys just love musicals they love them. yeah they, i mean we can why yeah. who knows i don't know we could just accept on the face that that <laughs> is what it is i mean i think that's great i mean it's, it's sort of like gay men in opera right i mean this is yeah. a that's a pretty well-known thing and i i think hey you know fantastic the last thing i was just going to say about it is that it's you know as soon as you start having families and having kids uh it becomes extraordinarily difficult to maintain a career in the theater uh, just because of the commitment. So I could see that that would be another reason why it might sort of gravitate in, in that direction. Historically. That's a great point that they definitely are able to advance uh, be, because of that. Although this whole outsider narrative is no longer going to work as we'll talk about, because now it's reversed, right? Now the gays are, are the insiders and all of us are on the outside. 
<laughs> well, in some, yeah, in some cases. I mean, the theater kid occupied government thing is wild. I mean, when they come on TikTok, like that crazy misinformation woman comes on TikTok and starts talking in theater oh, yeah. kid voice. I just, Absolutely I'm, insanity. I'm just, and I'm just pure crusader Jif at that point. I'm like, I, all my allegiance to the theater side of me just goes out the window. And, I'm <laughs> and ready then to, for no reason. Almost. No, I'm well, right. I'm ready why, to drill shins yeah. for Jesus at that point. What Seriously. Drill, you said this, what is drill shins? What does that mean? Drill. Oh, I just, it, it, it goes back, I think to the, the troubles and, you know, you grab your neighbor and it's a form of torture. Oh, drilling the shins. <laughs> Bro, they, uh, I mean, they, they locked out our kids and our families for years and oh, forced yeah. people to get medical intervention. And we're sitting here and I mean, not I don't, present company excluded, but we're just acting like nothing happened now. I am, I don't mean to fed post on the, uh, on the pod, but I'm, I have that side of me too. That is uh, extremely online in a, in a different way. Oh. <laughs> Okay, well, we'll get to that. We'll get to your your uh, status as a very online person and and where you lurk and and that kind of stuff. Uh, but for now, um, let's start in with uh, just your background a little bit. So, you are somebody like me who has gone deep into the throbbing bowels of the uh, you know what what do we call it. Uh, what's a word I can use that's not going to get me into trouble? The establishment. Let's use the the Yarvin world, the, the word the cathedral. And I think that what we see here is uh, basically there's always been an, the academy, right? There's a in arts. There's always been the academy that is the mainstream sort of art establishment. Um, and v- at varying degrees, that academy has been good or really shitty. Right. I mean, it's like uh, during the communists and during Hitler, their art academies absolutely sucked. Nobody wanted to see Nazi art. Nobody wanted to see communist art because it was all controlled like our art is today. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you, like me, have, for differing reasons, have experienced really the, the, the um, what Curtis Yarvin, he uses a word called cursus honorum. And curses and arm to him means like the pedigreed steps that you take in order to be accepted into the mainstream cathedral elite art world, right? So um, I, I know you, we weirdly, have you seen Tar, the movie Tar? I need to see Tar. You mentioned this last night. Yeah, I need to see Tar. Yeah, so that's very much about a woman who is perfect curses and arm. She went to every right school, every right step, every right fellowship. Every right below. You uh, are a Mishner fellow, um, whatever that means. And you went to UT, great school as an MFA. So I, I guess I want to say, like, in terms of you, the the cursus honorum, how good is yours, one to ten? Oh, one to ten. One to ten. I mean, I think there are a lot of young people uh, who would who would trade for my, my trajectory. Uh, I'm not going to give myself a ten because... Uh, Oh, well, well, maybe not necessarily. I mean, it depends. Uh, I mean, it depends on who you ask. I mean, what the Michener Fellowship means is that uh, James Michener, who made his fortune off of the the musical from uh, his from his first uh, book from South Pacific, uh, his oil money paid for my for my graduate schooling. Um, So I'm all about that. Uh, I'm a big uh, don't pay for grad school type guy, uh, unless you come yeah. from 
you know, serious family money. You don't don't shell out one hundred and fifty thousand dollars for an MFA to enrich your, you know, these these administrators who hate you, and then professors who are going to act like you're their comrade while they travel to their second and third homes, yeah. uh, you know, throughout the course of the year. Um, but uh, yeah, I I feel pretty good about it. I mean, I knocked on a few doors where I was uh, a finalist and got close, you know. I mean, I sort of, I'm very hard on myself, so I sort of sometimes think of myself as like an also ran. But at the same time, I, I mean, I was in my MFA program in 2010 and graduated in 2013. And uh, there's a there's a fine polemical book that you can get by the great David Mamet called The Secret Knowledge. You familiar with this? Uh, no, actually. I mean, of course, this I'm is, Mamet, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the book that he wrote after his coming out as a ma paleoconservative, right? And, uh, of course, the theater community just absolutely turned on him. It's verboten. Yeah. And there are a couple of chapters in that book devoted to uh, a little theater program at a little school in Texas and how they treated him when he was down there because he said something that was off color and offensive during a workshop and they proceeded to do what they do best and what they're now doing at the level of the federal government and every major institution. They proceeded to cancel David Mamet. They had a town hall meeting effectively trying to, I think, ban him from campus. It's all documented in there. And I was so excited because when I went down to interview, uh, I, you know, Mamet had just been on campus or something like this. And I was like, my gosh, I, oh, I can't wait. Maybe, you know, get to sit in a workshop with, with David Mamet. I mean, we, we met some very heavy people uh, while we were down there and they would, the Michener Center puts together these extraordinary sessions where, you know, uh, Brad was, uh, was hanging out with, well, not hanging out, but you're sitting across the table from Jonathan Franzen, the likes of, the likes of people like that. Um, uh, his name escapes me, but the great, the great screenwriter who wrote, uh, Empire. Um, it'll come back to me. Oh, Kasdan, Lawrence Kasdan. We got to just sit around a table, a dozen of us, and listen to Lawrence Kasdan tell his origin story, stuff like that. Point is, Mamet, his collection is at the uh, Harry Ransom Center at Texas. And after that incident, he just proceeded to say, well, I'm just not coming back. Uh, and so these, uh-huh. these activists uh, posing as artists uh, just the, 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 biggest chips on their shoulder and are just are always performing right onness. Um, and that I got, you know, funny way, the best thing about my education was that I got to experience that cauldron ahead of time. So everything that's happened since then has been like, for me, yeah, of course. Well, of course. Of course, we have a, a woman uh, who's handling disinformation at the federal government who sings on TikTok and, and talks like these people in vocal fry. And of course, of course. You just weren't uh, surprised. You saw it, you, you saw it coming from, from. Oh, oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I could go, I could go on and on about that, but uh, I mean, you know, and I, I nearly got into Juilliard here a few years ago. I, I, you know, for their program, I mean, my trajectory, there are a few things like that would have been great, but it's all, it's all changed so radically. And COVID was this major inflection point uh, in the culture, obviously, and for theater. I mean, I wrote what mo- most would consider like kind of a shit hot play. Uh, you know, it had four or five different readings all on Zoom uh, by different legitimate theater companies. And typically the way the play development process works is you get a reading, you get a reading, you get a reading, people start to notice. 
people pick up the play and run with it. But all of these were all of this was happening during COVID. Uh, we ended up, you know, putting that play out online in various forms. It's uh, out as a podcast. My my friend Jeff Giese helped me produce that, and that's at moderationplay.com. And that's a two-hander black comedy about social media content moderators losing their minds at work. So very two-hander. What is a two? What is two? Two actors. It calls for two actors. Actor. Oh, yes, two, two actors. Two-hander. And I'm and I'm in the process. So you mentioned pickleball earlier. And I, I write my screenplays with a very good friend of mine, Abby Lucas, who's a director. It's uh, A-B-B-I-E-Lucas.com. She's great. We met in the theater many years ago over in the UK. Uh, we've remained friends and collaborators now for I don't even want to say how many years. And uh, we are in the process of adapting. She's a director. We're in the process of adapting moderation into a screenplay with the thinking that it might be something that one day we could get the money together and, and do ourselves. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, cool. Well, uh, <clears throat> so still z- no answer on the one to 10 on how pedigreed you are, but we'll, oh, we'll take that I, as a high. That was like an eight. I think you're like, yeah, a- I'll, I'll give myself an eight because I never crossed over to that level <laughs> where like, I was like, there was a period in time where like, I've been a finalist for yeah, things stuff. that maybe would have put me over the top. Uh, and look, I'm, it's not over yet. I've kind of pressed pause. I'm not like, I'm not applying to things very actively. Like I've got young kids now. I'm living in. Well, and you're also defecting, right? I mean, you're basically defecting, aren't you? I kind of. Or are you waiting around? Like, are you kind of waiting around for them? Are you thinking vibe shifts? You know, the regional theater. There's going to be some regional theater where the artistic director is like, you know what? It would be cool to put on a white supremacist play. Let's oh my that. god! <laughs> well, I know I wrote a play. I wrote a play that did very well. I'm not. A, I'm not a wig guy. I, I wrote a. I, I wrote. A, a I'm, a, I'm a Catholic. I was totally I'm a Catholic. Um, I uh, no. I wrote a play called Coyote. Uh, in I, see, my plays are often untimely. Uh, you do where, use. Wait, hold on. You do use. Uh, you do write the N word in your plays though, or in, uh, at least in Coyote. In Coyote. Well, yeah. Well, Coyote was Coyote was heavy. Coyote, I wrote, let me explain Coyote. Uh, and that got a production in in Dallas. That was that was necessary for that play. That play I wrote after coming back from the UK, uh, back to Minnesota. I had, I had received the Jerome Fellowship at the Playwright Center, which was great because usually people get that after they get their MFA. So I'm kind of semi-local. I mean, I'm local to Minnesota. So I get that fellowship. It's a, it's a little bit of money in my pocket. And it was also like a golden ticket to grad schools, because if you already had that fellowship, it's like, okay, this guy, you're talking about cursus and norm. It's like, okay, yeah. here we go. Um, at, no, I wrote that play about a, a place about a racist uh, Minuteman on yeah. the uh, border uh, and a young man who attempts to infiltrate uh, the organization, and, and then it becomes kind of this mythopoetic uh, thing. It got a it got a, a quite a decent production in Dallas uh, at the Margot Jones Theater at the the State Fairgrounds. There, we brought a little truck inside the theater. It was very cool, very unexpected. You direct or just write? I will direct, but when somebody goes to realize one of my plays, uh, typically I love. <laughs> I had one of my plays, uh, which is published by Broadway Play uh, Publishing. Uh, It's called If You Start a Fire, Be Prepared to Burn. And I wrote that. I wrote half of that before grad school, half of that in grad school. And that is a play about 
OnlyFans girls, basically, before OnlyFans existed. So it was about cam models. I wrote that in 2011. Uh, you were definitely that, ahead there. There was a, like, you know, that great documentarian who did, uh, he was a cool guy for about five seconds. He did the documentary um, on the gathering of the juggalos. Oh, yeah. No, I don't. I need, like to, see, I need to see I need to see that. Yeah. His yeah. follow up, a, a same a time about was about about cam girls. Also. Was, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. So a little bit kind of untimely. Ditto with Coyote, just a little untimely because but I mean, the border has been a crisis for for that long. I mean, the, the genesis for Coyote. Um, and one of the reasons that character is so extreme is because he's he's baiting the other character. There's a real Beckettian quality, kind of a waiting for Godot under the stars with with shotguns uh, and <laughs> American paranoia to that play. Um, That's the log. And <laughs> well, I got I got I won a you know like a student playwriting award and got to go over to the UK with that. They I. You know, my my the most formative year I had in the theater was between 2006 and 2007 when I had the opportunity to go over to London and I was in the uh, Royal Courts Young Writers Program, the Soho Theater's Young Writing Program, and I just basically got like a Neo in the Matrix injection of hardcore, serious difficult challenging theater just shoved into my brain over the course of the year i'm a i was was a philistine and and just an american right americans think in film we don't think in theater uh and i just got a, a really serious education very quickly i was in a Camus play uh caligula which was wild and uh that's informed my my aesthetic and my my style ever since. I mean, there, to me, there's very few like few better days in, for me than you know, short of short of time time with my family. And I'm not being sappy, but really, but like <laughs> if I have my, I really mean this. If I have my way, man, you know, you wake up in in London. It's a Tuesday afternoon. Uh, you know, make some coffee, go to the Tate Modern, get a lunch, uh, go meet a friend or somebody from the theater in the afternoon somewhere in central London go see a play, come home, maybe hit a pub uh, and come home. That to me is just tremendous. Your I love it. I like love my worst day. Like I can't think of a worse day than what you <laughs> Are you kidding? Uh, oh man, I love it. Dude, I, I, as I, I told you, I grew up a theater. I My parents were hardcore theater people my whole life. So I grew up like I have like deep post traumatic. I can't see plays. I hate plays. I can't. Even like even straight no. plays that are anything just no musical really i can't the the actors like they just appear to me so cringy you know what i mean it's like you know when you watch a movie and it's like it's bad because it's cringy it's it's not self-aware or whatever that feeling you get you know when you watch something that's bad when i watch a play i get that like times 10 the entire it's a weird emotional thing i'm sure it's not actually like it but it's like i traumatized like i generally cannot watch it I was raised by, and, and our friend Stabmaster has a question in the chat, so I just want to real quick speak to that. But I was raised by school teachers, and I, I am now a shut down the Department of Education person. I don't, uh, just being anywhere, being approximate to like a public school, being inside it, I just, all, my all of my alarm bells go off. I just want to flee in the other direction. Yeah. Uh, so maybe it's- a Hold on, hold on. We, we can, we'll wait till, we'll get to Stabmaster's question. Okay. In all right. times, my show here. Okay. All right. Sorry. Sorry. I'm just trying to help. Control. Uh, okay. So no, I'm just kidding. Uh, so, but actually I want to touch on the next little bullet here, which is, 
So in your Kubrick, Kubrick episode, you say something that caught, that stuck with me, which was um, they he was an oddball, obviously, right? So many of the people um, that you talk about, because you tell these amazing epic stories of these artists' lives. Um, and as somebody who just likes stories, I can just listen to this stuff all day. Like, I'm so thankful I have it because it's just these, you know, great stories. But the thing that, speaking of Cursus Anorum, the thing that I think kind of stands out is they're always odd people, right? They're almost always weirdos, as most artists start off as. But when it comes to their actually process of getting into the arts, it's usually pretty standard. Like Kubrick started as a photographer. Somebody saw that he had good talent. And he was sort of absorbed into the, the world that he needed to be in, right? Today, though, we have this warped, messed up cathedral. Uh, we have the, a, a messed up talent recruitment system in the arts, right? Because it's all identity based now. And I can't think of the last person that came up the right way, particularly in writing, maybe in movies a little bit, who's making good stuff. I can't think of anybody, you know? Well, so so yeah. I guess my question for you today is... Well, that- if Kubrick was working today, would young Kubrick been recognized by the establishment and brought in, or would he have been kind of pushed away? Well, Kubrick is an interesting case because he, and I'm glad you're you're bringing him up because one of the through lines for us on the pod is this in, interrogation, this look at how the artists, how great artists accomplish what they accomplish. It's always kind of a mystery, isn't it? Uh and this reminds me of uh, grad school in, in the Ransom Center and how all through your education, and I'll come back to Kubrick in a second, but all through your education, they will hand you the greatest novels and stories and poems that have ever, ever been written. Let's focus on the novels, uh, the, the finest novels that the, the greatest writers who's ever, who have ever lived have written edited by the greatest editors who've ever lived and hand you this. And you'll, at least in my experience as a, as a wee lad in a terrible public school, which is now low income housing in North Dakota, I discovered, which was, that was a fun night on Google, uh, <laughs> pop it around. I'm like, I knew this place was a dump. Uh, and uh, they'll hand you that and you'll say, I want to be a writer. And it doesn't for a certain class of person that just doesn't compute compute. What do you mean you want to be to be a writer? Well, I'll, I'll tell you something. You can make a very handy living writing, even if it's just getting educated to be a writer and then going into corporate or agency life and just being a, a strong writer, you can make six figures in your pajamas. Yeah. But if you come from a class of person uh, in a time where that would, that's just not even on the radar, there's no, um, clear path from a to b they don't even know that b exists they think it's a fantasy um now my point getting back to kubrick is that you know he uh i'm pretty sure public school in the bronx jewish kid uh his family had some money like they lived in their own detached house but not uh a lot of money and he that you know he got absorbed into look magazine 
as a young guy. Right. He's like a D student. And I and Look Magazine was, I think, like kind of like second to life or yeah. whatever in terms of the photojournalism. And you got to imagine it was a different, of course, a different time. Uh, but I think he was he was like on their staff when he was like 17 or 18, uh, something like that. Um, now, I don't know if something comparable to that could happen uh, today, but it does strike me as interesting that his path was not this protracted incubation inside these cucked institutions. He went right to work. He was a working photographer. Right. But but from right. there, you're saying, yeah, no, no, that, that's an interesting point that it's like he didn't he didn't get trained in, you know, in this way. He went straight to apprenticeship and like actually making stuff right out of, right out of here. But do you think that his but he but you do say in the episode, you say that he when he started shooting for look, he starts to people start to realize he his talent. Yeah. The people around yes. him realize his talent. Of course. And then he's kind of like put in the right place. Well, how, to, how does he do that transition to from well uh, i'll yeah and i can explain that and this is one of the great things about kubrick is so how how dogged he was so he uh so he he's he's writing or not writing he's doing the photography for look and let me think here because i want to get the name of the thing right i'm looking it up here he he ended up making his own movie that's my point about kubrick so he did not sit on his hands. He got some money together through like a dentist, through the family, took a group out to California and made a feature film called Fear and Desire, which I think it's only like 63 minutes long. Uh, but it got, it, he had made, uh, I think, some short films, um, including Day of the Fight, which is worth watching. And that was based on a, uh, a series that he had done for, I think, Look Magazine, following a boxer around the yeah. day of the fight. That film is worth watching because you can see the germ of what would later become Stanley Kubrick's greatness in that film. Um, and look, he's he's a guy who today would be a New Yorker. Doesn't hurt. Doesn't hurt to be from a semi-affluent family in the Bronx. And the Bronx was, this is a Bronx at a different time. Uh, you got access to the, the capital of the world after World War II. The world the, shifted to New York City. Uh, and he he's kind of a guy who crowdfunded his own feature film and got it screened in New York City. And then kind of, it took off from there. He made himself is my point. Yeah. He was in the right place. He was he making, get, he didn't get like blessed into the system. He wasn't anointed into yeah. the system until he, because he had made, uh, let me get the name of it. Oh my gosh. It's going to, I'm, I'm, I'm going at, uh, killer's kiss. Uh, no, it's killer's kiss, but that it was the, uh, paths of glory. Which oh, yeah. as of glory is the first that's the first great Kubrick film as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Well, at that point, he after that, they brought him on to do um Spartacus. And uh, yeah. he was after Paths of Glory, he was kind of a made man, is the impression I get, because that is such a good film. I mean, it's so strong. And then he took over Spartacus. I, I learned last night that he and Kurt Douglas went 
to therapy together like a couple <laughs> because they hated each other so much they didn't get along which is very brad and i might need to do that for art of darkness uh, and uh well, it seems like you two get along very well huh? oh yeah yeah we're like we're like peas in the peas in the pod he's gonna be we're gonna do uh Art of Darkness live later this year, probably in June. Ain't St. Paul because Brad's coming out. He's going to be godfather to my uh, my oh, baby daughter, my baby nice. daughter. So now go. he'll 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 officially be family. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, when he took over Spartacus, I mean that was now you're you're I think he was thirty years old. Wow, like you know. But he he's I, I admire Kubrick so much because he's not somebody who sat on his hands he did not wait for them that's a serious problem we have now because these institutions have the arts scene have arts careers they hold the art arts careers uh like little little trinkets and toys that they can hand out to people well and, uh, and that's what it is for them right I mean it's now now yeah. these former jobs that used to be you know journalists is now some rich guy, you know, now it's the daughter of the billionaire is now. That's right. It goes, it goes to um, the people who, who least right. need the jobs. Well, in it was so insane. So my wife went to a, a private school in LA on the West side. That's like very known for lots of celebrity kids going there. And we go to the movies and like two out of three times she goes oh i went to high school with her i went to high school with him i went to it's like 90 percent of these people that you see in the movies are the sons and daughters or nephews or what or somebody of the people who are already in the movies like people have no idea they really think that these people just come out of nowhere like that almost never happens no well, um, and this is a this is something people talk about when you go and look up somebody you admire, and yeah. both their parents have blue links in Wikipedia. That's something that we yeah. we pay strict attention to. It's on, like every on now and then, you get a Jennifer Lawrence who genuinely comes up, but like for the most part, all these people are people you of daughters. And the thing is, <coughs> the thing is, though, you know, so there's always what I'm trying to get at here is. In today's world, I really do think things have, in America, have changed. And I think that there's always outsider artists, right? There's always going to be outside artists who exist. Out, Duchamp, Marcel Duchamp is like the paradigmatic example of this, right? In France or wherever, I guess it's France, there's the Academy. And the Academy's cranking out this like replica impressionist shit, trying to just kind of do what was popular in the past. There, it's very boring. Nobody's really into it. And then they reach this inflection point where somebody like Marcel Duchamp comes along and the establishment has gotten so rotten and so bad that Duchamp can't really operate inside of it. He has to operate outside of it and make fun of it. And that's like the inflection point where everything then starts to kind of shift and the establishment starts to understand, okay, we need to like make some changes. And then they get, then the establishment gets cool again and they know how to recruit talent. And then, you know, that's really the best times for art when the establishment and like the actual artists are kind of uh, together. I think we're now in a place in American culture where we're at the absolute stalest we can possibly be, right? Like we're, we're at the part where working inside the system, you really can't make anything good. I mean, like there's a few people who kind of can do it, but they're not recruiting talent at all. They don't know what talent is. They don't, they, they don't they even, even they don't even want, no, you have to understand these yeah. people are interested in equity, which in right. art yeah, right. translates to, yeah, to garbage. It yeah. translates to garbage. 
Well, it translates to, I don't know what talent is, but I can tell what skin color somebody is. <laughs> well, and you know, you know who gets paid yeah. in the arts in America. It, and it's just like the university system, administrators. We're talking right. about the the hijacking of everything that is good and holy, yeah. uh, or at least interesting, by uh, uh, PMC admins yeah. who are much more interested in the gotta catch them all mentality, uh, the perspective of their peers at all times. And uh, much like the, you know, my colleagues at UT, they have to be right on all the time. They have to signal how right on they are for every new current thing. And it's, that's a job for them. Once you have one of these positions, a great deal, a great deal of, of the calories they burn then go to maintaining their positions because they're so cozy. It's what the great greatest line about this is never expect a man to understand something that his salary is based on him not understanding. And it's like these people are there. They they fall upwards into these positions because they know how to judge movies based on the skin color of the person who made it, not on the quality. They simply don't see that. I remember in Hollywood. Uh, when, I, when I first moved here, I kind of was dabbling in Hollywood a little bit, not as an actor, but maybe like writer. And I went uh, to I don't like writing screenplays. I've I've, I've sworn that off. But um, <laughs> you're the only uh, man in Hollywood who doesn't I, like writing screenplays. for me. It's like you've yeah. said this also. It's like a movie making movies like running a business. It's not it's a totally different art form. Um, But anyway, I went to one of these like. um a budding filmmaker showcase from by NBC Universal. Somebody invited me and I went and this was when I knew things were really starting to, I knew something was deeply wrong because this should be young people who are talented, who are being groomed and, you know, like, Oh, we're, we're scouting talent. This is how you do anything. Well, right. Sports, architecture, anything you have to know how to groom good talent. It's just part of what you have to do. And every one of these movies was basically the same story about somebody being have racist or get, somebody, the main character was gay or black or woman or blah, blah. And they, so they were racist and then they somehow got revenge on the, on the person who every single one was, was the exact same thing. I kept going into the next one. I was like, okay, surely this one. Will not be. Right. About this will be. This will be a romantic comedy right, about right. a couple in the one. suburbs. It has, yeah. to, it has to be one that is not about this. Every single yeah. one was about. I, it. I understand. And I was like, "Holy shit! Like this is, this is like a. This is not just like some random thing. This is like, and it's not meant to be color. It's not. It wasn't about that. It was like genuinely like this is the young creators showcase, and it had nothing to do with the young creators. Nothing to do with talent." And all I'm saying is the establishment is so broken in that way that, um, you know, it's it's just a, as, as somebody like you who's been kind of, it seems to me like you went into the system, got to a certain point, and then were like, I got to now work outside the system. I think that I think that's true. Uh, but it's also theaters are very much a young person's game. And, uh, you know, I, I spent my, my years in New York City. I was a part of some different writers groups. I had some things going on, but I never 
I mean, the dirty secret among playwrights in America, uh, and I think even even in England now to a degree, is that everybody's angling for a TV job. Yeah, everybody. That's the highest status thing that a playwright can achieve, short of a, a Pulitzer or some sort of Tony position at one of the uh, universities as a as a professor, is a TV writing job. And of course, you know who gets those now too. Yeah. Um, so it's there's a certain point where the enough doors start shutting in your in your face. You're a finalist enough times where you go, I'm just going to take this into my own hands and make my own thing and sort of, uh, you know, um, you know, you can go to hell and I shall go to Texas. Um, Texas is a state of mind. Now, of course, I was at Texas before this, but you understand what I mean. I mean, I have my own little theater company, Badmouth Theater Company, that I uh, co-founded with a great actor named Amanda Forstrom. We have a website, badmouthtc.com. You can get presently four uh readings that we've done anybody can get them they're online on a little like sort of podcast format we we're going to be doing more of that we just released an adaptation of the Arto radio play to have done with the judgment of god on art of darkness at artofdarkpod.com so i'm still doing it but i've i no longer live my life uh with i'm done letting other people judge me and my work I'm done being judged by people who hate me for for uh, an identity constellation that I I have no, and it's not even that they, that they hate you. I've been inside those rooms. They're just it's it's Pokemon. It's got to catch them all. It's really pathetic, actually, and sad um, how those decisions are finally made. The other reality is like since Kubrick's time, how many more billions of people are there on a planet on the planet, and we're all jostling for these extraordinarily rare positions as directors, as writers, as, I mean, they're, so the competition has become extraordinary. I think the, like the O'Neill Theater Center for their uh, summer reading series, I think they, they do maybe 10 readings. They get like 2000 submissions every year. And it's understood that if you get one of those readings, like it's a career maker for people, that's the level of competition you're up against. I mean, the, the Michener Center gets 1200 plus submissions every year. Uh, so we live in a we live in a different, different world, but the happy answer to it for for people like me, for people like us, is that we now we kind of do live in an era of no excuses. So you can start a podcast, and if you do have uh, any any kind of talent, you know you can make something happen. Bottom line for me about the theater is that I never set out in the theater to have have one of those careers because I never expected it. I know I know the class of person from which I I came and I come and what I've accomplished already is more than I could have imagined when I was a young man and uh or like a yeah a, a young man and I'm not done yet I mean I can still now sort of make theater and do my thing it's just going to happen outside of of the institutions you know I don't expect Manhattan Theater Club to to clamor to do a production of moderation or any uh, other one of my plays and frankly I don't give a damn yeah well I just think we're the overall impression, like, look, it's important to listen to things that make you jealous, right? And there <laughs> used to be people inside the system that made me jealous. And I'd be like, oh, that, that you know, that, that, per- damn, like, what if, screw that. But also, like, I'm going to watch what they do. I mean, I do a different thing than you, but <clears throat> man, maybe writing's different than theater because writing is just has gotten hit the hardest, especially like the kind that I do. But there's just... You, you mean like literary writing? Like I mean, I don't do, I, I do basically gonzo journalism. I mean, I do culture. Right. I do culture. Right. 
Like I do the right. kind of stuff that you, I used to write for Vice. You know, I do the kind of stuff that you mm. would have read in Vice 10 years ago. Gotcha. Um, kind of like imitation. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I write a bunch of different stuff, but <clears throat> um, I just don't see anything coming from the, I, so this year in movies, right? Uh, there was a whole set of movies that were like, populist art films anyway <clears throat> tar which you guys see you'll absolutely love it because it's very mm. much about this world there was triangle of sadness there was uh this movie the menu there was a bunch of these movies that were kind of like class anger porn where the poor people like eat the rich people basically right but and they weren't totally based, but they had some based elements in them, et cetera. Like that to me is telling me that we're like uh, that. It felt like we're like the, the system is at war with itself now. Mm. You know, it, it was unified for a while, you know, like Hollywood was unified. And then now there are people inside Hollywood that are making films that are making fun of Hollywood. Right. Like genuinely making fun of Hollywood, which is good. I, I think that's a great sign. It shows that we like, at least until they become totally communists, there are enough people that like the actual truth, there are going to be people that are willing to make that. They're still, and they're still going to release it. They're still going to let it out. And as long as that's true, we will win. Like we will, we will win as long as that's true. The only risk is that it becomes actually totalitarian and we don't have the freedom to actually make this stuff anymore. Well, there's also, right, of course. Uh, yeah, right, of course. I mean, there's also the hope that Hollywood just becomes increasingly irrelevant uh, and that these these films are able to happen outside of that. Maybe that's my flyover bias. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I really I really don't know what's going to happen. I mean, yeah, but they are, the the again, I think we just need to pause and reflect on how insane the past three or four years have been. Totally batshit, off the wall, dystopian madness. Yeah, and now totally crazy. It's absolutely unbelievable. I mean, it's it's the 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 level of the just the pharmacological damage that's been done. Not even just in COVID, but COVID was a good example of the power of it. Adderall. Oxycontin, these are all like holocausts. You know, in, in fifty my, years, I mean, back, my back. friend, I mean, my and I and I don't want to get to, uh, to, and this is not meant, this is not sentimental at all. But the my father overdosed uh, from a, an opioid that never should have been on the market in 1986. This is not a crisis. This is a fixture of American life. Huxley did get it right that pharmaceuticals would play a major role in the dystopia, yeah. but right. none of those guys got it entirely correct. If anyone wants to look up the drug that killed my father, it's called propoxyphene. Yeah. It was released by uh, Eli Lilly, Darvon Darvaset, and the features of it are that it's a painkiller, not very effective at killing pain, and on the long tail of the bell curve, if you took slightly too much or if you mixed it with alcohol, just a certain number of people would die. And this was, this is the thing that killed my father. And I, I mean, it's just an absolute disaster. 
And we we continue to trust these people. It's it, that we, that's what's uh, well. First it's of all, disgusting. Very, very, well, they're a mob. Yeah. No. Well, no. They're un, unbreakable, and they're they're. Uh, it's like the doctors in today's world are the biggest effing criminals. They're drug dealing criminals, and uh, no one not uniformly, but. Yeah, I, I will tell you, the, the Christian scientists are looking less and less crazy. I'll Dude, say that. The Amish over the past are like, years. they were completely yeah. right about everything. Like, we should all be Amish. Um, <clears throat> yeah, no, it's it's really crazy what's what's happening. That's another uh, thing about my my life that's so unusual, you know, I and mean, we, we talk about this a lot with with the artists that we cover on art of darkness, there's very often a, a parent will die young uh, and having done the pod long enough. Now it doesn't really phase me. And I try not to get too per- personal on the pod, but uh, I don't try, I don't trust big pharma at all. I not at all. And watching these leftists, these so-called leftists get so on board to me has just been hilarious beyond belief. It's well, they're, they're so pathetic. No, they're not. They're communists. They're totalitarians. Are they even communists? I mean, it's like, right. they wouldn't even, yeah, no, they're, they're, right. yeah. Yeah. It's beneath contempt. We don't even have a word for it. They're just, they're, they're, it's just staggering. I mean, and the, I mean, we've got, you know, you have people out like forging papers in order to like work. I mean, you should have seen what the, the actors union required. I mean, these people have lost their fucking minds and they think that they're on the right side of history. Uh, and but it's this, just, this is the issue is the, the, the right side of history argument just is so dangerous. It's so, it's so easy to go, get into that. Hmm. And that can't be our guiding principle. It's their guiding principle. Well, right. Uh, well, you know, it's well, there. Yeah, there is no right side of history. Yeah, right, there is no right side of history. Uh, yeah, like, there's no right side of history. But like, you're you're 100% right. And this gets into their Hegelianism and their, their Marxism. They are obsessed with making history. Yeah. This is the first XYZ yes. who's XYZ who's who did this and it's like that's not hit that's not history no right. nobody's made history here well, it's because they have no religion they they have no religion right they've right they've been de-religionized they've been de-traditionalized they've, they've had all that taken away so they all those instincts they have cling to what's available and what's available is the story of right and wrong you know, it's, it's mm. the, the story of civil rights that we're taught. Yeah, there was a video that just came out of Kamala Harris talking about Kwanzaa. And he's uh. like, the elders gathered around and there was no seats because they were telling the, the elders were telling the story of our people. It was like Kwanzaa has been so since bad. 1965. <laughs> It's a new idea. It's made by a bunch of academics. It's made by a guy who raped a bunch of women and like imprisoned them. And the problem is Kamala Harris, like I actually pitied her greatly watching her tell that story because I was like, you have nothing to hold on to at all. Right. You're just out there flying around in space and you have this deep craving (laughs) to like find meaning and to find purpose and to be part of a people and to do all these things and you just have nothing to you're trying you're just making shit up because you don't have have anything right right have you right and yeah a hundred percent i mean have you heard the saying that uh politics is show business for ugly people 
Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, and a, a performance like that from her. It is. It's it's cringe beyond cringe. But I think that's the point. I think the humiliation of it, uh, the degradation of it, for for anybody with with synapses that are still firing that haven't been all clotted up by the by the shot, uh, is is part of it. It's a humiliation ritual at scale. So you think she's doing it on purpose? Uh I think it almost doesn't matter. I mean, but yeah, she's she's been given a script, I would say. I think so. Don't you I think, think? I mean... I think she's been given a script, yes. But I do genuinely... I believe that somebody like Kamala Harris is so... One of your favorite words, rootless cosmopolitan, uh, <laughs> is so... You know, th- these are California people. What are California people? They're people who have abandoned their roots, like fundamentally. Mm. That's That's what we are, me included. And, you know, that that group of people somehow took power. Like they some that group of the, the Kamala Harris, Gavin Newsom, um, Pelosi, that group there, the, the lineage of that group dates back to, you know, early tech, early cults, Getty family. Yeah. Yeah. These are people who are recreating society. Chinatown. What? What? From scratch, right? What? What? Yes. One of the things I, yeah. No, I mean, one of the things I say is we're all Californians now. Now, yeah. I mean, and uh, it's one of my favorite things about Mad Men is that conclusion where where Draper realizes he can be that cow that he can sell California. Yeah, that he and he goes and he's and ding, Uh, right? Just so people know what we're talking about, the last episode is him he's at the absolute low point of his life and he goes to a yoga retreat in California, which obviously in the sixties when this is taking place is like brand new. And I actually hate that last episode, to be honest. I I thought that that show ended kind of badly. And he has this stupid scene where he's in like a friendship circle and they're sharing their real emotions. And of course he as a fifties man, like breaks down because, you know, there's a fat guy who says that he, you know, uh, is the product that nobody wants in the refrigerator, which I thought was just the absolute dumbest shit I've ever heard. But the very ending is great because it shows him, you know, he's a workaholic and he's done this, uh, he's done this yoga retreat where he's supposedly finding his true self. And then he, it clicks in his head that he can sell that this is the thing to sell. So it is a very good thematic ending. Uh, It's wonderful. He, you know, he, he suddenly sees the future. Yeah. Uh, and it's I really do appreciate that about it. Yeah. Well, I, and I think the answer to your question is that it's it's a, it's a devil's bargain, because if you sever those roots, if you're connected to nothing but a sort of a Venn diagram of various cults, finance and three letter agencies and then tech. And one one thing I say all the time is that uh, uh, Silicon Valley is fed gov west. It always has been. Um, then, yeah, you can move the world with that because you're not beholden to anyone or anything. It's all it's Fugazi also, Fugazi. But it's and it's also a like. Um, there was a there was a good uh, piece by Nicholas Taleb. Is that his name? Do you know who I'm talking about? He was a thinker. He might be off your radar a little bit. Not Nicholas Nassim Taleb. He's kind of like a dark Malcolm Gladwell. He's like based Gladwell. Uh, And uh, he 
had a piece about a really insightful piece about like <clears throat> in a system like ours, the there's a great power to small ultra uh, loyal groups like Cubans and Jews and Mormons. These the groups like that do really really well in America. Podcasters, like, like yeah, small ultra loyal minorities like 100 they can pierce through all the stuff very very well i see this group of, of californians that really took over there they were like the people that just no one really were paying that much attention to like they were kind of like operating in the background doing their dumb shit tech they got really lucky with tech because as you're saying it's like they just they, they kind of lucked into that and then suddenly they're in control of the world. <laughs> and it's like, fuck. Like, nobody, yeah. people weren't paying enough attention. Like, the people who were supposed to be in charge, like, just kind of, you know, they had a bunch of fail sons, which always happens at the end of these big families. And suddenly, you turn around, and it's like, this pod of people have taken over the Democratic Party entirely. Uh, and essentially taking over every single institution and you're just like, fuck, you know, they kind of rose and they did it without anyone really stopping them because they could. Right. And now we're stuck with them, you know? And yeah. uh, And they're, and they're sunshine people. And uh, yeah, the amount of leverage somebody has now, if they come from anything like generational wealth from one of the coasts is just staggering. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I grew up around like poor people, trailer yeah. people, like all and very, very good people. Uh, but it's just it's just different. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it's funny that they're and then they're the ones who will lecture us about unconscious bias uh, as if as if they aren't operating from this cauldron of. I suppose, sort of soft communist totalitarian impulses. I mean, we did the um, the uh, uh, the Timmy Leary episode, and uh, recently on Art of Darkness, and that was that was an eye opener in terms of uh, just how tangled up with kind of agency business he was, and how how much of that went on, how much of that still certainly goes on, and the idea of the hippies as these like leftist uh utopians uh is very interesting to interesting to me and to to know like when i visit california i've only been out uh, a few times mostly to la though i have been up to san francisco it it's it's kind of surreal because you you go there you see it you pick up the vibe and you realize that like the 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 wave broke out west and then rolled back across the entire yeah fucking earth all the way back like there's somebody's listening to red hot chili peppers right now in bulgaria yeah oh yeah yeah yeah. no totally yeah yeah so okay let's uh let's keep talking about money but let's like move on to actually talking about we're like way late in talking about the actual uh thing we're here to talk about so art of darkness um Let's talk. I don't know. I'm not quite sure where to start here because I have a few different things. Um, 
there's so much of it. There's so many parts of Art of Darkness, your podcast. And I, I get the impression you've experimented with a lot of different stuff, right? You've you there was like a newsletter, you have the dark room, you have postmortem, you're doing watch parties, you have core episodes, you have after dark. Um you said to me earlier that you had actually tried to just do a normal talking podcast for a, a little bit. How do you know? And just in general, not only do you have all that, you personally, you have your website, you have your plays, you, you, you just have an, a massive amount of um, energy out there. Mm. How Before we get into how all this is monetized, <laughs> how do you... Uh, know when something is good and to get rid of it versus or when to keep it versus how do you know when to get rid of something you're trying out oh that's an interesting uh question with podcasts it's pretty easy because you you can track your your interest in it you can see what kind of numbers you're doing and but you want to give it time uh we we labored for a year on art of darkness before I think we really started to find our format and then begin to find our audience. But we, we could see, Hey, we're getting, Hey, we're, we're getting a hundred listens here in a, in a day or two. Okay. That's interesting. What's going on. And then there was finally one day this year, because we're coming up on two years here now soon. And season three is starting in 2023. Our seasons follow the calendar year. Um, there was one day where Brad texted me and he was looking at the numbers and he's like, I think there's a glitch. Like <laughs> these numbers are, look high. And I'm like, and I do, like you mentioned, I do web development. I do digital content management. That's, uh, that's you know, how I uh, support my family and everything. Uh, I genuinely enjoy doing it. Um, obviously, one day when Art of Darkness is uh, number one across the charts, you know, I might I might scale that back a little bit. But uh, I just was like, I just don't think so. Like, I, it, does, it doesn't make sense. Why would like some bot like... Uh, it just, I've never seen that. So I went and we found out we were charting in the the books category in Apple Podcasts. And we noticed a measurable increase in in listeners. And it sort of coincided. Um, so that was a very fun week. So for us now, it's like, well, we have an audience. We have people who wait for each episode. We've got 80 plus people in the Telegram. We have momentum. Uh, the other shows that we tried to do, like I did a little interview show for myself after Brad and I parted ways when we did our original podcast that was kind of just like a band cast, uh, which are just a dime a dozen. There was no franchise to it. There was no hook. Uh, so, you know, one thing that you learn when you learn like television writing and screenwriting, right, like for TV is that you want an engine for a show. Well, Art of Darkness has this limitless yeah. engine. Yeah. Because there are, there's, we do 20, we try to do 24. So the way the format of the show works is that we do core episodes about dead artists that do a, we do a comprehensive profile of their lives. Every episode gets an after dark for Patreon, which is an additional 20 or 30 minutes for every episode. Then we do darkroom episodes, which are like grab bags, like, uh, Isaac, if you want to come on, you see an artist that we've covered, you want to come on and talk for 90 minutes, we do that. Those are great because that lets us get great guests. We can kind of revisit uh, artists we've covered, touch on different areas. Those are a bit of a lower lift. I mean, obviously for the core episodes, we really prepare. We buy the books, we get the biographies, we do the research. Um, 
And we take turns, like you mentioned at the top of this show. I'll do one. Brad will listen. Brad will do one. I will listen. So it's a it's a real pleasure. It's like something we would do uh, ourselves, sort of, uh, <laughs> whether or not we had an audience, whether or not we had a podcast. You know, there was a funny tweet that went around like uh, like last month. Somebody tweeted, um, men invented golfing so they could take walks together and podcasts so they could have conversations. <laughs> so yeah i mean and then as far as like theater goes like i've I've written plays that i've submitted around and don't do anything you just hear crickets back nothing happens then you write a play that like you know and of course when you finish a play you always think "Ooh, this is the one you know but somewhere in your heart you kind of know so like i finish moderation i'm like yeah this is this is gonna have a life uh you know and then if theater companies start to respond you know you know I mean, I mentioned uh, if you start a fire, be prepared to burn earlier. That, I don't think I got to my punchline about that, which was I said sent to this little theater company in Manhattan that I don't think they're still working, um, but they are just like a super indie theater company. They're called Monday's Dark. And uh, they wrote back the next day. I emailed them. They wrote back the next day and said, we want to do your play in New York City. Like, and... I was younger then, and this is during grad school, and I had other things going on, and oh, somebody else wanted to do the play, and then I had a plan over here. I thought it was going to be like that forever. <laughs> it is not. If you ever have a moment like that in your life where you're getting the production here, just savor it because there's no guarantee um, that it'll last, and, and theater is definitely a young person's game, you know? The the, well, the what new thing. The what, what about the pod? Is, is there, because, you know, like, I, I am in the game of I've been writing shit on the internet for 11 years, right? In different. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's always the same. Like you write 10 things, nobody gives a shit about any of them. And then you write one and it just explodes. And like, you're getting emails, you're getting all kinds of stuff for like three days. And then everybody forgets about it and it disappears. (laughs) And then, you know, and I've, I've had this happen over and over again for, for my whole life. I, you know, we'll get to my story. We don't need to tell my story now. Um, with Art of Dark, I get the impression that it's still kind of primordial. Like, like there's so much, like you're, you're trying the live streams, you're trying the, uh, you know, the watch parties, which I, which I came to last night to watch Eyes Wide Shut, which was, which was fun. I guess what I'm wondering is like, are there any times in which you've had something that hit? in that context as a podcaster that was like, that's what we should be doing all, all the time. Or is oh. something like art of dark uh, darkness, a little bit different than what I'm doing, which is just like writing articles because you're kind of just growing. You're like brewing this audience. That's just going to grow and grow and grow. Right. So you're talking about the, the things that we we're doing now that we have a platform and an audience through art of darkness right? Like we're, we're not going to be putting out radio plays on every other episode of Art of Darkness. The core of the show are those core episodes. And the genesis of the show was a bit of a eureka moment for us. But if you, if you go back and you listen to the early episodes, we didn't know what it was going to be exactly. We knew it was going to be Brad and me taking turns, uh, Brad and I taking turns, uh, covering, profiling, a dead artist. That was the format. The first episode is Burroughs and it's 60 minutes. And then slowly it starts to grow and the episodes get longer. Yes. 
and Gurdjieff was 90 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, 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 mm -hmm. not at all. I'll, I'll just say when we, when we arrived at Kubrick, which went, I think somewhere between two and a half and three hours, we didn't get bored. I wasn't exhausted when we were finished. We st people started to really engage on social media and people started to ask to come on the show. Then we knew we had something. Uh, you do that... guests for the core episodes? We will do guests for the core episodes. We're trying to I, back off. I don't off. think you should. I don't think you should do that. I think that like, yeah. I mean, obviously this is unsolicited advice, but the the issue and i dude i'm not criticizing at all i have this problem totally too but i'll give you a special like jew tip this is <laughs> you understand that i as a you know michelin half -y, and, and, and uncircumcised kind of jew tip unfortunately i'm I have <laughs> but um uh you know i can get i can the i've been deep in worlds with you know people high up in the music industry and the reason part of the reason why Jews are so good at the entertainment industry is because uh, they, we, whatever, know really how to detect that we A B test shit all fucking day long. And the thing that works, we're going to go deeper, 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 deeper into that thing like forever. You know what I mean? Obviously, there's massive exceptions for this. I'm talking about like the Jewish executive type, like Bob Dylan's the total opposite, right? He always did the thing. And I'm also the total opposite. When something succeeds, I want to do the uh, total opposite thing of what just succeeded. But I think that what you really have with Art of Darkness is you and Brad, great chemistry, great storytellers. You really do the work. I mean, the the the, the level of just knowledge in each of these mm. things is astounding you know and, and really just worth it on its own you guys have this core thing you're telling the story of an artist you're getting the you know the the nuance and the you do it as an arc uh you get the themes you get everything like that it's a lot like have you have you heard martyr made i have not that guy's stuff it's no. kind of similar to martyr made I, um he does like he's he's basically like dan carlin you know oh cool um I love Dan Carlin. I don't see anybody else doing what you're doing with artists. I don't see anybody else out there really telling the step-by-step -step story of these people doing the work. And honestly, I don't think you need anything else. I think like if, if it's just you and Brad doing that and you guys just nail that all the time, all this other shit is going to take care of itself, basically. I mean, I, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. I'm just oh, yeah. saying like, it seems like you guys have hit this really, really good stride. And what I'm asking, what I want to know is, has that been reflected in the numbers? Like when you guys hit that stride, was it clear that, okay, this is this, were you making that decision? Cause like, Oh, this is working and this isn't. Or no, I mean, the, the, no, it's more that the, the show's format has always been uh, Brad and, and I alternating uh, and doing these core episodes. People started to ask to come on. We we've have invited people on to core episodes in the past. Uh, we have had sort of, we've had some pretty good success with that. It's sometimes, it is sometimes very, very helpful to have a third person along for those. We are, we then invented the dark room concept 
because so many people like people wanted to come on. We wanted to have guests on. Like we had Carl Rollison on, who's a New York Times bestselling biographer. Uh, he corrected us and told us we're not doing a biography podcast. We're doing a profile podcast. Oh, Biographers okay. write that biography. Was Faulkner? He was for Faulkner. Yeah, for Faulkner. Yeah. He part of that. He yeah, was, he's great. Great he was, guest. He was fine. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I really, I, he was a great guest for us. We're very happy to have him. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, so yeah, so the show is sort of grown, grown organically out of that, but the, the core of it, and we are uh, conscientiously going to be um, backing off from having too many guests on the core episodes because they are the meat and potatoes of the pod. We want to be able to control the audio quality uh, and the format of those. And also, like, as they've gotten longer, we also don't feel comfortable asking guests to make a four-hour commit or a five-hour commit. Um, we did uh, <clears throat> we did Crowley with the great Stephanie Leahy. She's an unusual case. She is fantastic. She's a medievalist. And she really took it to heart. Uh, I went away for a day. And came back and she had turned the outline from like my little five page sketch. The outlines usually end up being 10 to 12 pages uh, and made it into like a 40 page outline. The <laughs> final outline was 50 pages. We did seven hours of Crowley between the core and the, and the after dark. That's an unusual episode. I think for us, two and a half, three hours is the sweet spot. But even that is a lot to commit to for a guest. So more and more, we really are going, okay, Brad and I are going to cover the core episodes. Yeah, Occasionally, right. we'll have people come on. But then we'll use the darkroom episodes to have guests on because people get so passionate about it. I mean, I think Faulkner is our most common uh, darkroom subject. So Faulkner or Kubrick. Um, and then, of course, we're starting the book club for Patreon next year. So the point is, like, we have we know what the core of the show is. Like, if somebody like put a gun to our head and said you can only do one thing for Art of Darkness, it would be the core episodes with Brad and me. But because we've got a platform, we want to do other fun things and kind of indulge ourselves. And and um, of course, you know. well, no, and you should always be experimenting with with other stuff. I just think it's like it's cool to see it because you're creating a completely independent thing that you're not being paid for. And we're all doing this. Everybody in our scene is doing some variation of this, right? We're all developing, we're chipping away at creating our own art from scratch out of completely nowhere, which is really never before has that been the case, right? There's, there's never been an instance in which technology has made it possible to monetize your art by going to your audience directly. And now we have that. So we're all going through this project Um and it's been cool to see that with Art of Darkness. And I think that you really have the stride with you and Brad doing the main core episode and then leaving all the guest stuff to the other episodes. And uh, yeah, I don't know. That's just how it's like how it makes the most sense to me in my head. Um, yeah, I but appreciate anyway, it. That's just uh, okay. So how speaking of then this will get to the crux of, of what I'm curious about. How far away is it from being a living? <laughs> Art of Darkness is, it's not as far away as it might feel. Uh, there's that whole zero to one thing, right? I mean, I think I think we have a, a, a strong proof of concept. Artists keep dying. <laughs> so we're never going to want for subjects. I mean, we could, we have a rule where we wait a year and a day before we cover anyone. We just did Norm MacDonald recently. 
MF Doom, we waited a year. Brad raps on that Patreon episode. If you really want to, if you want a reason to shell out the money, uh, rapper is it? Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, I mean, we're we're making like something like three hundred bucks right now on Patreon, uh, which you know, obviously, that's not enough to make a living. Uh, there's there's the Pareto principle is in the, is in play for sure. Um, I frankly think that like barring like a complete absolute parabolic. Uh, front page news, top 10 podcasts in the country, top 50 podcasts in the country. If we got to a a, a place where it paid enough for like almost like a full, like a part-time job. And then even around like maybe a full-time job, I don't think I would quit. I wouldn't quit the other stuff that I do. I, I I wouldn't want to like do this, like quote unquote full-time. I don't even know what that would look like or feel like. Maybe I'm, maybe my imagination is too narrow. But who knows what happens? I mean, if it if it takes off and the right person sees it, the right like executive sees it, I don't know. I mean, there have been what didn't like drunk history got like a Comedy Central show or something like that. I I'm not we're not holding our breath for any like anointing like that. Like we don't care. Like it'd be great yeah, if somebody wants to uh, you know if Art of Darkness becomes this big brand, you know, like like Last Pod on the Left is. I mean, those guys make they make bank. I mean, and some some podcasts make bank stand-ups will make like seven figures on what do you, you know, think again so let, let's talk about last podcast on the left which i see as your closest analog so they have a uh all like if you look at their site they have <laughs> all kinds of so they don't do i don't know if they have any patreon they do they they don't do I, yeah they? no they do i'm pretty they sure do. they're yeah, like they do. They do. i think they might be like a million dollar patreon yeah yeah, those guys are. Well, they I were like they're, they're Patreon and nothing. Okay, here's our Patreon. Want even more content? Become a patron. So let's see if we can see. So these guys are like you know the the best. Okay, they they make seventy three thousand dollars per month. Yeah, not bad. <laughs> yeah. God damn. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's not bad. That's not bad. I would like to make. Yeah. We would take we would take a percentage. We take a fraction of that and be and be pretty happy for sure. I think I make like 95. So I can, I can multiply that times 10,000. Um, uh, yeah. Wow. Uh, so that's how you do it guys. Well, it's, it's the, it's the Pareto principle. Once you break out, once you start to get an audience, it should go uh, viral. Yeah. And then uh, our friend in the chat, stab master saying they shill ads hard. That is true. That's another thing that we're going to start doing. Ads. What do you they mean do at, they do ads during their 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 episodes. I think if you subscribe to their podcast, you can get ad free. That's an option. Well, but so they're um, making money on ads also. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They, once once you have that kind of an audience, you're they do live shows, they sell merch. They're an industry. They they got to be making like a million bucks a year at least. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, they've but they've built something that's awesome. And and those episodes are evergreen. Because they're about events that have happened in the past. Yeah. I mean, our show definitely. I I, I think you guys say, got it, man. I think you got yeah. it. What what else is? I mean, who knows? There's so much effing crap out there, but I don't see anybody else doing what you're doing. Is there any? Oh, oh here actually, here's an exercise I wanted to do with you. So, <laughs> so when you look at the um, more like this tab on Spotify, right? Oh yeah, yeah. They don't have you with last podcast on the left, which is an oversight of their of their system. Unfortunately, they put you with a bunch of 
right wing stuff. Uh, <laughs> I wonder why that is. is wrong. They shouldn't do that yeah. because you don't have a right wing. It's not like my podcast. You don't have a no. right wing podcast. You know, you have a no. story podcast. Uh, and right. it you with hermetics. Well, he's he's been on as a guest. Yeah. Oh, okay, so that's why. And then Subversive yeah. with Alice Kashuda, which is just a bant cast of just talking, as you say, with like cool people. Good old boys. Good old boys. Have you heard that? Uh, yeah. Yeah. They're kind of like you guys-ish. They do like topics, don't they? Uh, I think they do. I'm not, not super familiar with their show, but I know they have guests on and stuff. Yeah, you, they keep popping up. You see them around a lot. Um, and then Contain, which is like Dime Square Art Kid podcast. I actually met that guy the other day at the farmer's market. And then uh, Over Morrow's Library. I, I don't know. All I know is that we we chart in the books category internationally in the top 100. Regularly. On, on which? On, on, which? on, uh, on iTunes. I, I don't know if we're charting very heavily now. Those get updated on Wednesday. The last big surprise was like, we're like number 26 in the arts books category in South Korea, which is like, okay, cool. And I, I, yeah, I don't know how what those things mean, but it it is cool to see. And when we you know when we're in the top one hundred in the U.S. we de- or the U.K. we definitely go okay, all right, we're doing something right. Um, I figure if we just keep going, we keep making good content, we stay current, keep doing the two core episodes a month, and then augment it with other fun stuff with the dark rooms, regular interviews. We don't go away for too long at a given time. I think that we will reach like a at a certain point the pot will boil over. Well, the biggest uh, obstacle is going to be your politics. You know, that's what's that's what's going to both help you and hurt you. It's going to well. Kill- we kind of we don't make the show a political or about politics. You, and I, yours, not the shows. The shows isn't political. It's it's going to be, you know, as you said, the people who vet this stuff. Uh, their job is to vet us out. That's their entire. That's, that's their entire reason. That's well, why we're they job. They have a job, so they Google us, and then they find. Oh no, no, they're not part of this. We got to get them out of there. You yeah, know? I do sometimes worry about that. Uh, we're we're. I mean, I did have my main uh, Twitter account whacked, but that was for a variety of reasons, not not all of which were political. Yeah, but you, I did. Po- you haven't. You were big before, and now you're. Yeah, of- like forty five hundred. Yeah, I mean, I I posted a lot of guillotines during the 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 fake plague. I was yeah. pretty. I was pretty angry. Uh, I'm still pretty angry about it. Um, yeah, that was a real pity. I had some some big follows and everything. But hey, look, I just sort of go that that account was super toxic. Not the account itself, but stuff that had happened around it. Because I, I went down some crypto rabbit holes. And people are absolutely insane. Uh, and, you know, and it was associated with my name and everything. So in a, in a lot of ways, it's kind of a relief. I mean, I'm not hard to find on there. Um, frankly, what I would like to see is I'd like to see Art of Darkness get 10,000, 15, 20, 30,000 followers. That to me means more than like my own little account, which I just... I don't really care that much about, um, to be frank. Yeah. Do you sell any merch? Yeah, we have a bonfire. Yeah, I think you. I think you. You're aware. We have some funny shirts. Don't uh, do heroin, go- says one yep. shirt. Another yep. dead do artist. Heroin, says another. another dead artist. Yep. You can get the logo uh, on is, things. Is that, is that uh, you know? Are you, does that work at all? Because I, I, of course, everybody who's in 
our shoes thinks, oh, I'm going to make a clever shirt. Who's going to, everyone's going to buy it. <laughs> We've had, a, I've had, a, I've had a few people buy the shirts. I mean, for me, it's, it's, this is not like a source of revenue or anything. It's yeah. more just a, a fun kind of novelty. I mean, eventually, like if we cross a threshold where we know we could sell 50, a hundred tickets in London, in New York city and LA for live shows and do like, a little mini tour or occasionally go do a live show in a major city, uh, 200 tickets or whatever. That would be amazing. I would love to do that. Uh, I, I love performing live. We're going to do it live in St. Paul here. We're going to do the first 90 minutes of Fitzgerald. We're going to marry that to my theater company. The theater company is going to do a, a reading of an adaptation of winter dreams, the great Fitzgerald short story. Uh, can't wait to do that. That's going to be so much fun. Yeah. So somebody like me, who who is trying to like i could do more paywalling right which you Mm -hmm. guys do a little bit of paywalling i could do more uh merch right i could like uh there's a lot of different ways i could monetize the business of what we do i'm interested to talk about like the business of what we're doing what would you tell somebody like me what what to focus on and then what do yeah. you focus on? And you're talking about your your writing. I sure. Well, I'm doing a podcast, so I have a podcast yeah. and I have my blog, right? That's yeah, what- yeah. Well, so for, I mean, so for the podcast, I mean, I think format is super huge. Being crystal clear about what the nature of your show is. I mean, I think one of the things about Art of Darkness that is strong is that, like, we have an intro. The intro explains exactly what the pod is in 30 seconds. Um, we're going to start running ads. Um, we're just going to read our own ad copy for some different affiliate links and things for ourselves. They're going to be really short and sweet. That's going to start next year. And it's just going to, well, just going to be the same. Option. That's another option. Ads. Well, I'm, I'm just, I'm using myself as an example. I'm saying mm-hmm. for a young person trying to do a work, yeah. Yeah, yeah. what are the things that you've learned work versus what, like what, so you're saying, yeah. you're saying well, merch. Okay. It's not like, that's yeah, you're not gonna you're not gonna make revenue on merch. No, yeah. no, no. Yeah, Patreon Patreon works. People people are familiar with it. They're comfortable with it. They're, they'll put their credit card in. They'll sign up. Uh, we had somebody go to our like max level after the Crowley episode, and I'm like, whoa, okay. Somebody really appreciated that. That was very cool, very nice, super simple. It's just a link. They make it easy for you to uh, to put stuff behind a paywall. It's just a natural thing. Um, and on the writing front, I would look at what. Uh, my friend Aaron Gwynn is doing. Do you, you follow Gwynn? He's uh, He's been on our pod a number of times. He's going to come on for the book club next year. We're actually going to read one of his books during the book club, but he's also going to do... Um, who's he doing with us? I think he might be doing Hemingway. Anyway, he's he's a very well-known writer, but he's he's turned a, a substack about Blood Meridian oh, yeah. into it legitimately into like a moneymaker <laughs> for himself. <laughs> That's right. Just like, and so I would just say, go look at what works. Yeah. Um, like I, we, we did take a little detour and go, okay, what are some of these other podcasts doing? Um, you know, we felt out like, okay, well, wait, so we're trending in the books category. Interesting. Well, why don't we do a book club? It's the most natural, like obvious. I mean, that for us isn't even going to be that much work. Yeah. We'll get extra content for Patreon. We're already reading most of these books for, for the episodes we do. I never need an excuse to reread Heart of Darkness. And we're also getting to promote some friends stuff. So like Dan Baltic's great novel, Nutcranker. Yeah, I read it. No, he, he came on. I had him on. We talked about it. 
Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. You've, you've read Nutcracker. Yeah, yeah, I read it. Yeah, bro, I blurbed. Yeah, I blurbed Nutcracker. Oh, that. Blurbed, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man, dude, that book. I might write a. I might write a review of that for one of the one of the outlets that everybody will be familiar with. But dude, yeah. that novel. I that novel has me writing a novel. <laughs> I mean, I got all this other stuff going on, but yeah, I literally how the hell do you have time to write a novel? No, it would be it's, with all you're doing. Just a thousand words a day, man. Oh, that's your keep... thing. You do a thousand words a day. Yeah, you. Tra- I mean, if you can write a thousand words a day, you can write a novel in a year easily. Easily, a long. That's a long novel. You should be able to write to draft a novel in in, in under six months. Yeah. Wow. Um. You just got to weaponize your autism. <laughs> well, the first thing I ever did was publish a book, actually. Oh, yeah. So I, I published a book before I even got published in Vice. Yeah. And, or like not exactly concurrent. I, I, I worked, I think I wrote for Vice first, but um, and I was like an LA Weekly columnist. I, the, I, but what I would say for people trying to do that and trying to like do what we're doing is you have to find your scene. That's the most important thing. Like when I when I published that book, which was not very good because I hadn't become a good writer yet. I was still like in law school, basically, when I wrote it. Um, I published it just out in nothing. I just dropped it off, you know, but, but what we both have now is a scene. You know, we have people that we can share stuff with. We have people that will tell us what they think about something, you know, and you find that on Twitter. And mm-hmm really need to have that before you start creating something as an outsider if you're not going to work inside the system you have to find that group of outsiders that are going to be your like little mini system um <clears throat> that's what i would say is is actually the most important thing to cultivate uh not okay. hard to find on the bird website what not hard to find on the bird website yeah you just gotta like start liking stuff that you actually like just start posting guillotines yeah wow uh (laughs) although that got you canceled uh it was some other stuff but that's fine (laughs) um okay so what are some other ways like in in your uh doing all the work that you've been doing um historically how have artists like us made money uh they married it uh quite often uh a lot of artists would would just do commercial work um i mean you think about shakespeare he was a shakespeare was was like the greatest television writer of his time that was a working yeah well it was he was like you have to think about it it's super helpful to think about this stuff as a craft and as a job, like any other job, yeah. uh, I was that was something I wanted to say earlier about Kubrick. He was a craftsman, right? Uh, and every like commercial photographer, right? Well, yeah, and no, everyone, yeah. My life, like being a copywriter, I've learned so much about writing from copywriting. You know, hundred percent titling things correctly, and yeah. Well, and you also have to learn how to tell a story. I mean, you know, not everybody's cut out to be Hemingway or Faulkner. We're not going to, you're not going to have a new one of those every, every week. It's, it's not everybody even wants it. I mean, there's a certain, that's part of what our pod is about is that how much grief uh, and agony most of our subjects go through. Uh, It's how to make an artist is not always pleasant. At the same time, you don't want to, you don't want to languish in that. I I kind of admire uh, David Lynch and that little book that he wrote 
catching the big fish. He talks about this sentimentality that young people will often have about artists and the struggling artist and how they like lean into it. And he'll say, why would you ever do that? Your life is going to throw so much pain at you. You have, there's no need to court more. Yeah. You're going to, you're going to find plenty of suffering. So, and he says, it's not even a, a good way to be productive. You need to be healthy. You need to be functioning. Yeah. Every move. I've, yeah. I've never, I was blessed with having artist parents. So mm-hmm. I never had to go through that. Like I never, I didn't want to be an artist at all. You know, I've, mm-hmm. I've actually always been trying to escape it. I've always been like, I don't, I want to be rich. You know, I want, I want to pick a fence and a family, you know, like I'm totally fine. I always in my head said, I'm totally fine not being an artist. It would, and because I saw like being a starving artist is terrible. It's not sexy. It's not cool. It's not, it's not romantic at all. I think to try and be, and all the people who were, didn't really want to be, you know, I mean, there's a few exceptions, but, um, it was something that was thrust upon them much more than it was something that they embraced. So I think David was totally right about that. Yeah. Or it's, it's a rich kid LARP. The, yeah, it's a lot. The right. four the four roommates in Bushwick, but then you very quickly realize like, oh, they're going to spend summer in the south of France. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, so right. So selling out, yeah, I I totally agree. I think that selling out people don't realize how much uh people do sell out. You know, how much people you know, selling out meaning making art for money. You know, making yeah. Art. If somebody came along and said, "Hey, uh, will you write a <laughs> commercial for Pfizer?" What would you say for a million dollars? A million? <laughs> uh, fuck yeah. yeah, I'm doing it. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Oh, for a million dollars? Oh yeah, easy. Easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You're gonna want to have a triple jab your your infant. Yeah. Uh, as soon as they're born, we gotta get we got a COVID nineteen, COVID twenty, COVID twenty one. For a million dollars, I got kids, man. I can do. I can do more good in the world with that million dollars. Like my one bit of copywriting for for Pfizer is not going to make a dent. Yeah, somebody's. You understand? We all say somebody's going to do it. You know. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. This whole selling out question is very interesting. I mean, Faulkner went to Hollywood. Brecht. The great communist went to Hollywood. I mean, like, come on, get the fuck yeah. out of here. You know what I mean? Like, you know, they 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 wave those those checks in front of you. No, I they mean, all do it. I mean, yeah, they all they all do it. The only way to keep, I mean, Bukowski to me uh, is the purest artist ever. You know, he he like. It, so I've read all his letters, and he. He, it's totally a mistake to think of him as this guy who was just drinking and like, yeah. But the difference with him is that he was one hundred percent purely focused on writing. That was it, and he was an absolute savage with his editors. He would even he would like send them four letters weeping, like, "Where the fuck is my money? Where is my thing? Why are you not putting this in more things?" He was like totally savage, but he never like slipped into anything else like it was just pure writing like that was the only thing that he did but even he went to hollywood you know he's got a book called hollywood you know all about uh sure barfly 
But what's the reason why, you know, the way as an artist to discharge your selling out, which is something I always try and do, is you have to tell the truth about the system that purchased you, right? Like you can be right. a whore, but then you have to tell the dirty secrets of who you whored out to, you know, like that's, <laughs> and he did that yeah, right. with his book. Like he told the truth about the system, which you really have. We, we got to say that uh, Kubrick was pretty damn pure. I mean, after Spartacus, Spartacus was the only film that he didn't have final creative control on. After that, he was an absolute monster in terms of owning his own productions and running a business. Every one of those movies for Kubrick was a new business. Uh, I think he even talked about, at one point, he talked about getting insurance from Lloyds of London in case they landed on the moon or something before he could make the movie there was some sort of weird like he, he was he was literally speculating with arthur arthur c clark about some abstract insurance that he could get that like well what if they find something on the moon like i need my movie to be insured against that oh. like that level of mania monomania yeah. that it takes to make something like 2001 is very very pure and he went to england and he never came back i mean and he he made eyes wide shut uh, a, a New York movie in London <laughs> and in you know a studio over in England. He he really did not like coming back to the United States. He also found out he he found a way to make movies cheaper over there is partly the reason. I had no idea that Eyes Wide Shut was the longest consecutive film shoot of all time. Fifteen months, Eyes oh, Wide Shut, cool. crazy. And yeah. when did he die in there? Did he die at the very end? Or he died at the very end. He died like four days before the before the release. Wow. Yeah. And he died in his from like a myocardial infarction. And there's some theories that he was poisoned. He may have yeah, may have yeah. tipped his hand. Well, yeah. of- All right. Well, let's ask these uh, questions. Uh, the, our questions. We have two. Okay. Uh, one is that I'd be interested to see if KKU makes a distinction between art for its own sake and commercially successful art and what he thinks of the refrain that dissident art needs patronage. All right, I'm looking at the question. Art for art's sake and commercially successful. I think you can make art for its own sake that that is also then commercially successful. Uh, but that's extraordinarily like rare. That's a that's like a rare gift. Like I consider art of darkness, like podcasting, there's a there's a quality of art and craft to it. So I mean, if the show ever became a commercial success, I would be absolutely floored and over the moon. But I don't think that. I've never set out to write or to make anything with the purpose of commercializing it. That's never been the creative impulse for me. Not ever. Uh, Not in the screenwriting, not in, you know, any, any novel writing, not in any uh, podcasting, no outlet, especially not theater. Uh, (laughs) The the kind of theater I like is like poor, dangerous, uh, and I'm over the moon that I've had a couple of plays published, you know, two or three pay, plays published by different places. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a, in a town with one high school and like five or six stoplights, you know. Um, I had a play premiere in London and get reviewed by The Guardian. So for me, all of that is like, it has to be like a certain amount of relative kind of uh, stuff. When I mean, you think about like Wu-Tang Clan and their stuff, whether, whether you're into hip hop or not, like that's some pure art that was co- commercially successful. It can happen. I mean, you think about like Blair Witch. That's another good example. I just saw, and I'll get to the second part of the question in a second, but I just saw that movie, um, 
Skinamarink. Did you see that? That's no. been going around. It's called Skinamarink. It's a it's a movie that was made. It's like if David Lynch had made Poltergeist. It's like a like a two hour long or a ninety minute long night terror that you might have had as a child, like a nightmare as a child. They made it for fifteen thousand Canadian dollars. Oh. You can find it online. It's streaming online. And it's a sensation, right? I mean, they've they've already made that money back and then some. Um, so I mean, it can be done. It can be done. Uh, and then I don't know about like you know like, but then like Disney. I mean, maybe one of the best examples of something that I think is a genuine piece of art that elevated the source material and created something that was wildly successful commercially was The Lion King on Broadway. I think she did an incredible job with that. Um, Oh, yeah. Let me look it up. Uh, It's going to make me. uh, Yeah, Tamor. And she took something that was, you know, the Lion King is Hamlet with lions and it could have been just garbage. And instead it really is this extravagant, beautiful, operatic, theatrical piece. So it can be done. You can work inside the system. Some people can work inside the system. And then this business that dissident art needs patronage. I totally, I totally agree. Uh, I think we need patronage and I think we need our own institutions. Um, you can get attached to this feeling of, oh, we're outsiders and we're dissidents. Still, not, it's not going to pay the rent. And in this country, it's not going to cover your health insurance. And our enemies, like people who legitimately hate you and want you dead and your children enslaved and fully vaxxed and boosted and uh, enlisted for future wars and who knows wherever, are giving each other the best jobs. They're signal boosting each other constantly. And they're doing it with a degree of elan and righteousness, self-righteousness that is staggering. They don't even know that they're swimming around in a soup of their own bullshit because it's everywhere. So they are the the right on people. And of course, I deserve the $180,000 diversity and and equity role at this this company that uh, now donates a million dollars to the local regional theater and then also has a member on the board and gets to decide who has a career and who doesn't. Yeah. It, it works at every single level. So yeah, we need our own patronage. We really need to genuinely support one another, support good work like Baltic's novel, buy a copy of, of Nutcranker, tell Dan how, read it, tell it, tell him how great it is. You can like keep this stuff afloat just by supporting each other and like, and pitching in and helping each other. Yeah, out. totally. Yeah. No, I've, I've been actually really surprised about um, how willing people are to give money on uh, Substack, you know, I mean, people mm-hmm. really understand what you're saying. I think like people really are understanding, like we have to support this if it's going to happen and I'm not going to give my money to Hollywood anymore. You know I mean? It's just, yeah. It's, and you have, you know, and you have uh, guys like Lomez doing passage yeah. and, you know, when do these things start to morph into different institutions? I mean, I can't remember when this came up, but I mean, it used to be that everybody understood that like, in the Ivy League, the different institutions had it had a different character and a different political character. Yeah. Probably was Yarvin or something. Like Princeton, I think, was considered to be kind of the right-leaning one. Yeah. And do you know? And that's gone. Just total absolute lockstep step homogeneity just across the boards. Just disgusting and loathsome. So there's going to be a yearning and a desperate need for cultural institutions. I don't care if you call them dissident or not. 
right-wing dissident. I don't even know what it is. It's just anything but that. Uh, and if these if these billionaires who I used to follow me on Twitter and who I know people who know these guys, I, I, I would really love to think that they could get a group together. I mean, you talk about these the mythical teal bucks or whatever, but like really – you look around it, look at the culture and look at where the levers of power are. It's not all in, in boardrooms. It's in like regional theaters. It's in local rate. It's in NPR radio. It's mm-hmm. in cultural institutions. It is having the ability to like anoint an artist as like, imagine a right-wing MacArthur genius grant. Yeah. Right, right. Some, somebody could put that together. Musk could put something like that together, but then, but you have this weird, tech bro side to that all and it's all got to be about money it's like well bro your kids are going to grow up in an even freakier and weirder and more progressive and more lefty culture unless you really begin to value this stuff uh more we might drop (laughs) well good that was very good um okay we've already answered uh, the second question which is why hollywood writing the question is why is hollywood writing so bad these days i've got 20 mutuals who are legitimate better storytellers than contemporary screenwriters um they want mediocrity yeah i i think uh so i saw the movie the menu uh, a couple nights ago and i i um that's a movie that wants to be a radical class commentary based movie right and that's clearly why it got greenlit it's clearly why it has the cast that it has um it's basically the same movie as Triangle of Sadness, which is by this guy, Ruben Ostrin, which is a great satire. It's it's very funny that it, they're actually almost identical films. Um, you can tell, though, that this system was this movie was made inside the system because it's hmm. like a Hollywood hack writer team and a TV director that has directed Game of Thrones, you know, and like it's clearly this team of people that have come together and that that same system used to be able to make good shit. And the reason that that same system used to be able to make good shit, in my opinion, is because you had some megalomaniacal total Weinstein asshole at the top of it, who was putting insane pressure on everybody within it, right. To, to perform and cutting things that didn't work and, and everything like that. Now you have this totally different longhouse techno gynocracy where it's like a bunch of people like in a writer's room, like saying quips and then they analyze the quips and then a million people give notes on the quips. And it's like, it just kills vision. It kills the vision of the thing. There's a great, there's a great quote where he says, you know, Ogilvy, the advertising, great advertising guy. He said, I doubt there's ever been a great agency that wasn't the shadow of a single man. Yeah. And I think that that's a hundred percent true in, in writing, you know, or in, in Hollywood, it's, you need to have a singular vision. And now we have these, these group visions, Much. right. And it's, and they just get killed by death of a thousand cuts. Death uh, a thousand. That, Here's a, Oh, I'm a the, development executive. Let me give you my notes on this. That is literally destroying the thing that you're trying to make. That goes all the way up on the left all the way to the white house right now yeah right and writer's room white house total our our side or this other side of the people who are outside of that can look at it and go what a you know weekend at biden's this is insane but when you understand that 
the left despises the great man theory of history. Yes. Yeah, yeah. They they love the dialectic. Yeah. The and Marx. They despise the the Nietzschean great man. Yeah. So Biden is perfect. They he's just, not a person. He's a he's a writer's room of people. That's what he is, right? He's a writer. They love the they first love writer's it. room of a bunch yes. of people on Adderall who all went to the same three colleges. Who all have vocal fry. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's what yeah. Biden actually is. They from- they love it. This is also, I mean, and they'll talk about this in in these, you know. I mean, for theater, there was just a ton of that. There, there was even like during, you know, in a lot of ways, UT was maybe the wrong program for me because they were so focused on this transition over to devised work. That was their big, the big turn in the American theater at the time, which sort of reduces the playwright to a member of a troupe. You're just the scribe here to help shape and mold our genius as we roll around on the floor uh, or whatever it is we're going to do to create, right? So th- there's this weird politics around it. And it does have to do with like, just this kind of squirming awkwardness that they have this idea that somehow it's like fascist in a way, like that, like I said, like Stanley Kubrick is a bit of a fascist and you go, no, he's a great, like, what are you, what are you freaking talking about? He's like the last great humanist. Well, which is uh, hilarious because fascism comes of course from the word right. fascia, which is the same right. word literally that faggot comes from. It's yes, a, it's a bundle of sticks. A bundle yeah. of sticks, and yeah. so the, the, people say this word fascism to mean like, as you said, you put it very the one man theory. When actually, it's the exact opposite. It's the right. multiple man theory is what fascism is. Yeah. Um, okay. Very good. So let's uh, we're we're uh, let's finish wrap up here. I have just one more question for you. You were I it came as a huge shock today that I saw in researching you. That you were on Josh Denny's podcast. I was. Yeah, the great Josh Denny. Canceled comedian, former Food Network host, and a guy who I've had a lot of interaction with, Josh Denny. How did you come across him? That's such a like world-connecting moment for me. Yeah, well, that had to do with moderation. Uh, Jeff Giese, who's a good friend of mine, uh, reached out to me actually through Twitter a few years ago and said, hey, if you want to do something artistic, loop me in. I want to be involved in something, which was great. This is an example of the, I wouldn't necessarily call him a patron. You know, he came along and helped produce this radio play version of moderation. Some dude, you know, I met, uh, you know, on, on the bird website and I consider him a, a good friend. And so he got to get involved in a little artistic project. And part of that was like, Hey, let's make sure that people hear this. And so he, we put together an introduction. I got introduced to to Denny. I didn't go into him at uh, his pod as as well prepared as I could have been. I was, it was, I actually remember it was right around Halloween and we had gone down to New Orleans, uh, my, uh, my, my gal and I, and we were in this totally legitimately haunted house in Treme in New Orleans like literally we walked in and, and she had just finished it was an Airbnb she just had finished evicting some people and there was like there were like little streaks of blood all around oh. the apartment 
<laughs> it was amazing. We had the authentic New Orleans experience. Yeah. But I remember Josh being a very, very good host, but very hardcore, very intense. And, and at the time, I was still flirting around with the, you know, I like I said, I nearly got into Juilliard there at the end of my New York time. And, you know, I was like, COVID was kind of going on. I didn't know what was going to happen with the theater. And I was just sort of flirting more and more with like just coming out and saying what the fuck was on my mind on Twitter, which is partly how I met Geesey. Um, that's another thing I would sell you tell uh, sell to and tell young people. Just say what the fuck. Just say what the fuck is on your mind. Yeah. You don't want to get into a position where you got to hide your hide your power levels that much. Uh, well, you want to. But be... then that goes against the whole anon debate, right? This is the whole. Well, the whole then, then do we have another two months. two yeah. hours or not? I don't know. But in any case, I was a face cuck, and uh, uh, but uh, yeah, no, Denny was great. He, I just going on his pod, I was like, he was like abortion should be evil and da 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 and I was like I was like okay all right okay Josh Denny cool yeah I'm very interesting dude yeah very nice guy he so I uh, I actually have so I you know run a uh a marketing agency a creative agency called Will um and I launched it two years ago and I kind of launched it as a not based agency, which it is now, but I launched it as like a free speech agency, right? Like it was like, we hire leftist and right, right wing people. Uh, and so the two guys I hired to run it with me were Josh and this guy, Brad Robinson, who oh, cool. was a leftist. And so I was like, Oh, it's a balance and blah, blah, blah. And so I had a lot, me and him, like, hung out, me and Josh hung out in LA. About, oh, yeah, yeah. But uh, it did not end well. I'll just oh, say. Oh, I'm sorry I'm to hear that. Gonna, I'm not going to go into it any more than that because there's no point. But uh, that's that a big, did not end well. Will, Will big personalities. Yeah. Yeah, I think big personalities. And, you know, Josh, I have a lot of respect for Josh. He's actually a great comedian. He's a he's a very skilled comedian. You know, I used to go see him uh, perform here in LA a lot, and he's very skilled. He's a, he's really quite good at it. He's really on another level. He's like on a very pro level. But um, you know, talk about somebody who's constantly trying to find ways to make money. You know, it's like we we're all scraping by, and so that created a lot of pressure. And you know, whatever. Mm. I'll, I'll tell that That's story right. if Josh ever wants to come on. We can d- tell the story in full. Should we reach out to him and ask? You never know. Yeah. Um, okay. Cool. Well, I think that's that. Where can where? I mean, we've talked a lot about Art of Darkness, but why don't you give us all your URLs? Yeah, I, the the plugs. Artofdarkpod.com, the podcast about the dark side of creativity. Get in there, listen to some episodes. Patreon.com/slash/artofdarkpod. Badmouth Theater Company. Badmouthtc.com. The radio play that we did of the uh, the Artaud radio play, the revival of it, that's on the Art of Darkness podcast. I have my own website, kevinkouchman.com. It's K-A-U-T-Z-M-A-N. That's plenty. I would say start with Art of Darkness. If you get into that show, not hard to find. we got a Telegram chat that's active. Isaac is in that chat. We have a lot of fun. We are a diverse gathering in the most meaningful sense of the phrase. We've got people from all over the world people from different backgrounds. We've got PhD medievalists in that chat. We've got spicy anons. We've got writers like uh, Isaac. And there's always something new going on in that chat. It's a really fun way to kind of like engage with a little community. And you know, everybody is into at least a couple of things, art and artists and podcasts. So yeah, yeah. fun. Nice. Nice. 
Really uh, glad to be here. This has flown by. I feel like we just started. Yeah. No, I right. We could talk about it all day, but we got to give people. I, I'm thinking about making these an hour, capping them in an hour. And okay. just really leaning into the interrogation thing and just making it like we're going. I'm I'm gonna like take control. Uh yeah. or so. I'm just such a like I always I'm like a in some ways when I'm not drunk, I'm like a people pleaser. So I don't want to like be too mean, but I think maybe I'll try and like be a little well. Mean. I hope I wasn't too I hope I wasn't too talkative. And no, I, no, I'm, not at all. Yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. no, I really enjoyed it. I agree. What flew by. Um I, I kind of want to be, you know, you're from the Midwest, so maybe you know of these restaurants, which are per- the perfect thing to have in the Midwest, but like there's a place in Chicago called Ed DeBevick's where the waiters are really mean to you. Oh my God. My mother could, my mother encountered one of those and we're from North Dakota, which is barely the Midwest. North Dakota is like its own animal. And she could not get over that place. She thought it was the funniest thing in the world. She couldn't, yeah. So we yeah, would go yeah, there yeah. as kids and they were like huge assholes. It's a, such a Chicago, like Midwestern thing. I don't think it exists anywhere else. And I kind of want the show to be a little bit like that. Like I want to like, oh. I want to be a yeah. little bit more just because there's so much because as we said, we we're such like nascent people, you know, like we, we're all helping each other. And I really believe in that. But I also do get a little bored of the ass kissing sometimes. Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, you could do a podcast and I'm not I'm not pitching you a change for oh, your show, course, your show, but you could do a funny, funny podcast called like Let's Be Assholes. Yeah. And right. just do something that could be an interesting for I mean, maybe it's not Let's Be Assholes, maybe something a little different. Let's be jerks. Uh, you know, yeah, no, but I, I like the idea of the interrogation. And I don't know how you would like the interrogation by the carousel or the carousel interrogation. Yeah, so you can play with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, cool. no, genuinely, I like that as a format, man. And if you really bring people in with the idea that, like, I'm going to have guests on, and I'm going to I'm going to give them a grilling, and I'm going to ask some unusual questions. It's not going to be the same uh, kind of uh, fapping softball. Yeah, aren't we all friends? Podcast. We are all friends, but it's not going to sound. But like it's that. not going to sound like that. Yeah, I'm going to try and yeah. develop that a little bit more. But um, cool, man. Okay, cool, dude. Thank you so much, Kevin. I'm going to stop. Of course. Yeah, man. Matter of time, we got to get you on Art of Darkness. Totally. Bukowski episode.